I am probably one of the most blessed people to come out of the building alive. I say that because I have no memory of that day. And in getting to know others that were there, they seem to have a much harder time recovering from their memories than, than I did from my physical injuries. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, you're going to hear stories from a survivor of the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, as well as a firefighter, a grandmother of a survivor who was just a baby that horrible day. And we are grateful for their courage and willingness to share these stories during the recent Zero Mental Health Symposium. The theme was healing from historical trauma, and that's what they're all still doing and will continue to do. So we appreciate them. You'll first hear from Mike Bros, CEO of Mental Health Association Oklahoma on that day in 1995. And then you'll hear from Sue Bullard. And Sue was, until recently, the director of the Oklahoma City Bombing Project, charged with helping victims, their families, first responders, and their families and others directly impacted by the bombing to secure physical and mental health services as needed as they have been in recovery for the past quarter century. Then you'll hear from Susan Walton, who was in the Federal Employees Credit Union at the time of the explosion. Then you'll hear from Marcus Evans, who was a young 23-year-old firefighter on that day in 1995. And then you'll hear from Dolores Watson, who is the grandmother of a child who was lucky to survive that day. And finally, we'll close out with Dr. John Tassie, who recalls what it's like to have served people for all these years. The Mental Health Download starts now. We're going to pick up the conversation where Mike Bros explains the role that the association played in helping the Red Cross serve people affected by the OKC bombing. Here's Mike. As the CEO at the time or executive director of the Mental Health Association, we did a lot to support Oklahoma City. But one of the things that many of you know, Mental Health Association, that it was Mental Health Association in Tulsa, for uh, you know, 55 years, um, now we have become the Mental Health Association Oklahoma, and we began to work and get to know our friends and colleagues in Oklahoma City. And one of the very, very first things I learned was, while I have my own trauma and experience as a Tulsan and as an Oklahoman uh, from the bombing, it is nothing like the experience of people, and not only then and now, in Oklahoma City, in the metro area there, who were there and experienced this bombing in so many ways. And uh, you're going to get to hear from them. When we came over to Oklahoma City, uh, one of the very first things that we heard and learned about was the work at the American Red Cross ongoing with the survivors. And of course, we were invited uh, by the American Red Cross, the Mental Health Association invited, to bring Sue Bullard and Terry Winblad over to be our employees 
to let them continue, which now became known as the Oklahoma City Bombing Recovery Project. And it was like one of the greatest honors for us to have that opportunity and to get to know these remarkable women and their story and their help to so many people and what all happened there. So I wanted to set that stage. And, you know, this this conference, guys, is healing from historical trauma. And it was really important to me that the Oklahoma City bombing, after 9-11, uh, around the country, people kind of forgot about the bombing, but it was the first terrorist, uh, domestic terrorist attack in, in, of significance in this country. And many of us remember that. Some of you on right now are young and maybe don't even remember it, but this is about listening to the people of Oklahoma City today and listening to some of these individuals as first responders, as people who were victimized by the event and their story and their recovery. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for you to come and share from your story. Thank you. Wow, you can definitely hear the emotion in Mike's voice as he introduces Sue Bullard. Sue was, until recently, the director of the Oklahoma City Bombing Project from its inception. Here's Sue. On April 19th, like you said, 95 at 902, almost everyone in Oklahoma knows where they were and what they were doing. Uh, in the Alfred P. Murrow Building, uh, which was a nine-story building, uh, downtown Oklahoma City was destroyed with 4,800 pounds of ammonia nitrate and fuel oil. Pretty much the north side of the building took the largest impact, but still when it went down, it created a 30-foot crater that day. So, and we know we lost a hundred. We lost 168 people died, including 19 children. There were 592 people injured, 183 people hospitalized. We also had um, about 25 other buildings were damaged, and 10 buildings were totally destroyed. And I was with the Red Cross, and they opened approximately 1,500 cases and received 15 million dollars in donated funds and were able to sustain those funds and use them to help individuals affected for 25 years with that. And I think when we first began the project, the whole program, we were all hired for just one year because Red Cross thought we would be completed in one year. And as you can see, it took 25 years for the money body to end, but there were still needs for 25 years. I don't think anybody had any idea, and Dr. Tassie can certainly talk to this too, of how many needs there could be. And, and, you know, the list became endless and of possibilities. And what we realized was how one family member impacted, how much it impacts other members in the family. And, and again, like I said, the list and the types of assistance was endless. And we were able to provide that for and sustain that for the 25 years. And for those past 25 years, Susan Walton, our next speaker, has received those services. So Susan is the executive director of Suited for Success, Inc. And it provides career seminars and collects and distributes professional clothing and related items to women in the Oklahoma City area who are job ready and are in the interviewing process. She's also a survivor of the bombing. She underwent numerous surgeries and related therapy for over five and a half years. Although the bombing interrupted the initial progress of Suited for Success, Susan focused her energy during her recovery to Suited for Success and helping others as a way of returning to society the care and support she received after the bombing. Here's Susan. Hello, 
Well, I am probably one of the most blessed people to come out of the building alive. I say that because I have no memory of that day. And in getting to know others that were there, they seem to have a much harder time recovering from their memories than than I did from my physical injuries. I was, as you said, a, cu- a customer in the credit union that morning. I fell into the pit area and I was found by a police officer who handed me out to just people that were there willing to help. And I was carried around to, to triage. And there was a doctor there. And he, I got to talk to him later on. And, and he said, I broke all rules of triage to even touch you. That's how far gone you were. But he said, I had a minute and I had the, and the equipment. So I tried to intubate you. The first time it failed, the second time he said, I stuck my finger down your throat, closed my eyes and visualized and it went in. And he said, the last time I saw you, I didn't think you would make it. And I didn't think you'd keep your left foot, but we're both here and a little worse for wear, but we can get around okay. My injuries were a basal skull fracture, nerve damage behind both eyes. My nose was broken. I lost six teeth. My jaw was fractured in six places. I had a ruptured spleen and both legs were crushed from the knees down. I spent five weeks in the hospital and I think at that point I had undergone about 15 surgeries, some more major than others. I woke up, I say it was five days before I even knew what happened. And then being a news watcher, I turned on the TV and watched the news that morning and thought, what on earth is is this all about? For those of you who lived in Oklahoma, it was on the news every day for months and months. So I was, after being hospitalized, they sent me to rehab, was there for three weeks because I got to go home after two months. At that time, I was married. I lost my husband about five years ago, but he was a very good caregiver. And this is one of the stories that most people that have heard my story like to hear. I went into the hospital as a Jane Doe, and he was going around searching for me. And um, my sister was with him because his car was in the shop and mine had just been totaled in the bombing. So they uh, finally found me. I was at Presbyterian Hospital and he said, I came in and he said, I leaned down and I said, sweetheart, we're here. And you smiled and I knew it was you by the wrinkles by your eyes. And I tell him, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) There were, uh, that couldn't have been me. There are no wrinkles by my eyes, even today. (laughs) I I deny that. But uh, from my injuries, I have used practically every handicapped aid known to, to man. I was in a wheelchair. When I woke up, I had external fixators on my legs. So for months, years, I sat in a wheelchair with my legs out in front of me 
because they wouldn't bend from the external fixators. But over time, I mean, I was always getting better. And I, I think that really helped me. That and the support of the community. It's, it was incredible, the outpouring of love. And, and that was uh, pretty incredible that helped me. And, and not having a memory of the day, as I said, has made a lot of this easier. And as I, you know, as I got better about a year after the bombing, I wanted to know what happened. So like I said, I got to talk to the the doctor that helped me in triage. And during my recovery, I went through, or I was part of Linda Cavanaugh's tapestry. And so I got to talk to the doctor that helped me. And I got to talk to as I, I had been taking interpreting for the de- deaf at OSUOKC. So that's one of the ways that they found out who I was because I was fingerspelling for all I was worth that day, trying to communicate. And when they figured out that that's finally what I was doing because they restrained my arms because they thought I was flailing and they got an interpreter in there, she said, when I walked into the room, I knew you weren't deaf. I responded to her voice, but she said, I got my hand up in the right position and I gave her my name and my mother's phone number. Well, I don't know that they knew whose phone number it was, but anyway, I always say, no matter how old we are, we want our mamas when we're sick. So that was, that's basically how they, how they found me. And I, I didn't have any insurance at the time. So they took care of all of those needs for me. I was given a handicap van by a group, including the Lions Club. The builders who built PJ's beautiful room on came and built a handicapped bathroom for me. So I have been very well taken care of since that time. I And part of my recovery, I uh, founded and run a nonprofit called Suited for Success. And helping others and thinking about others' needs more than mine, I think, has really been very helpful on that. And um, the foundation where the remainder of the money is still takes care of me, my medical needs, because I wear Job's toes and special shoes and and orthotics. And, you know, and, and that can be kind of expensive and not part of the budget. So... One of the last things that Sue helped me with, she helped me get some new shoes. So, you know, and that always helps a girl's mental health. <laughs> and it, still, it's it's the little things sometimes that, that bother me. You know, one of the biggest pity parties I had was they gave me a new nose. So this face is not really the face that I had <laughs> pre-95. But it's not a bad nose. But but I, you know, sometimes feel like I'd, I don't look like me. And, you know, the injuries to my legs has prevented me from uh, being quite as mobile as I'd like to be. I mean, I'm a, back in 95, 96 during my recovery. I'm a grandmother. I'm a great grandmother even now. And I can handle the newborns, but when they get a little bit older, I I don't really have the, well, they could outrun me. (laughs) And so that, you know, not being able to, to be as much a part of their life as I'd like to 
is kind of something that I think about from time to time. All in all, I've recovered pretty well. My recovery was going along and I thought, well, this is as good as I'm going to get. Am I going to be able to handle that? And that kind of worried me because I, I didn't go get any counseling for that, but, but I've handled it. I like to think okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe from my little talk, you found out I haven't. <laughs> Thanks again to Susan for sharing her story. And now you'll hear from Marcus Evans, who was a 23-year-old firefighter on the day of the bombing. Here's Marcus. Well, thank you for having me. Again, my name is Marcus Evans. I'm, I'm now a retired firefighter for Oklahoma City. I retired in May of this year with almost 30 years. On April 19, 1995, I was stationed at Station 5, and it's at 23rd and North Broadway in Oklahoma City, which is, you know, about 10 blocks or 15 blocks from, from the where the Murrah building was. I had been a fireman about four years at that time, so I wasn't brand new, but I was still new. I mean, I was about 23 years old. So we were preparing, to, you know, to make a meal, mow the grass, and do those things that firemen do at the station when we heard the explosion. And I remember going out back of the station and what I remember may not be exactly what happened, but I thought I seen like a mushroom cloud. And that was just moments after the explosion. And we got on the rig, the engine and, and rode down there. We had a three uh, companies, an engine, a hazmat and a ladder company. And we responded to the scene and we were there uh, all day and all night. Back then, you know, cell phones weren't a thing, but somehow they got up like 50 cell phones and put them in the hazmat unit and told us to call our families. And, you know, we didn't really know much about cell phones back then. And I remember calling my dad and telling him that something happened downtown. And he said he had heard about it. And the president was talking about it. And I was like, oh, really? You know, wow. But it, it was amazing to me how much trauma and injury and damage there was in one place. I took a few things away from that experience because we, we returned to the scene maybe for like a couple weeks, you know, and did uh, rescue and then it turned into uh, body recovery. And I remember it affecting my psyche in such ways because I was a pretty faithful Catholic and I started to really question things like miracles and things like that because I remember expressing to the debriefing team that we would go see that there was something very real and cruel in the notion that if concrete was going to fall from eight stories and there was going to be a child there, it was not going to stop falling and it was going to hit. And what was going to happen was going to happen. And it was not going to stop happening. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I was like, that's too much. You would think that like, I, w I would ask myself, you would think that that would be stopped. Like, that's not okay. And as I told that to the debriefing team, and I remember all the other firemen were like, yeah, oh, you know. And as years went on, I did 30 years. I did 25 years after that. I remember hearing people say things like something was a miracle. And I would say, well, what about a 10-year-old kid riding a bicycle down the street and going over the, going over the handlebars. The uh, forces of nature are going to happen and that's just going to happen. And where was the miracle in that? I mean, if he, if the child died. So I don't know what, I mean, that, that is always the reality of what happened was just 
too much. And as, as my career went on, you know, I, I ended up going to a fire station 14 back in the early, late 90s, early 2000s. And we were making, you know, 25 calls a day, trauma, shootings, suicides. And I got to where I didn't think I cared about anything. So I would leave the fire station in the morning and I truly believed that I deserved to go straight to a convenience store, 7-Eleven, and drink a six-pack of beer in the parking lot. I thought I deserved that because, I mean, my gosh, I look, look at this. Look at all this stuff that's going on. And, you know, I'm an alcoholic, so that didn't do me, that, that didn't serve me well. I was married when the bombing happened to a very good woman, and I had children, and she divorced me in 2011. My drinking was so out of control that I was drinking always and I could hide it. Well, I couldn't hide the drinking, but I was successful. I had a good construction company and I was a great firefighter and people wanted me to be on their team, but the people I live with didn't want to live with me, you know, and I was always hyper vigilant about everything. I wasn't one of these guys that thought I needed to carry a gun or anything like that, but I was one of these guys that I, I couldn't wear flip-flops or sandals or go barefooted because I thought at any moment I may have to spring into action. Like that doesn't make sense. Like I, I now it doesn't make sense to me, but I, what I meant was I didn't think I was going to have to go fight. I thought I was going to have to go. Maybe I would pass by a house that was on fire and I would be barefooted or somebody would, if I was at a swimming pool, somebody may drown. And what would I do if I didn't have the right gear on? You know, I wouldn't even, it got so bad that I wouldn't even go on vacation because I was afraid if I was gone and there was another big event in Oklahoma City that I would be the fool for not being there. I mean, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. So my wife would want to go, I don't know, to Colorado or Chicago or something. And I'd be like, well, what if we're gone and there's another bombing? I mean, can you imagine that? I wouldn't be there. Well, all of this culminated into a very bad situation. And, and, and Sue Bullard got to watch a lot of this happen. Why I say that is because I got into, I got a caseworker and got into therapy around 2010 when everything was falling apart. I couldn't, my wife couldn't fake it anymore that things were well and my friends didn't want to drink with me. You know, I was down to, you know, drinking vodka because that's apparently that's the last thing most of us drink before we just go over the edge is you just sitting there drinking vodka all the time. And I got a, an account or a, or a case with Red Cross under this, what we called the, the, the bombing money. Firemen used to joke and call it the crazy fireman fund. That's just what they, we, we would joke about. And I started seeing a, a therapist in Oklahoma City named Gorman, uh, Melissa Gorman. And things were, I, I was trying to save my marriage. I wasn't trying to stop drinking. I ended up going to treatment for alcohol addiction and this fund this Red Cross fund funded that. And I went to treatment in December of 2011 and I never drank again. Didn't use any like tab tablets, pills or anything like that. I, I, I never drank again. However, it didn't save my marriage. And there was a, there was a awful divorce and Sue watched a lot of that happen. And she got to hear from both me and my, my wife at the time, but I did get sober and then they sent me to a called the West, West Coast Trauma Treatment Center. And it's for like PTSD for, for, for firemen and police. And that was out near San Francisco. Now that was good. Wow, that was something. I really listened to what they said and I did what they said. I left there in 
within months or a year, I could go barefooted. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't worried that something was going to happen. I didn't care if something happened in Oklahoma City and I wasn't there. I quit looking at every neighborhood. Like I drive around Oklahoma City and I'm like, oh, that house was where that lady got killed. That house is where that body was in there for four days before we found it. That I don't do that anymore. I don't even think about it. Okay. I'm not saying I don't have consequences of PTSD because I do, but it's not running my life. I did get remarried and we are very happy. And my, my wife is, seems to understand, you know, she understands alcoholism and trauma and all that. I mean, and I'm, I'm thankful to Oklahoma city because when I drive around, I always remember that these people in Oklahoma city, they funded this. I mean, like the community put a lot of money into getting me right. And almost nobody has that. Like, I mean, our jails are full of people that doesn't have any funding basically. So luckily I was a fireman and it is pretty easy to fund firemen's problems, I think. Right. Well, and, and, and we did. And, and I think I got, well, I still got to work on it. I always work on it, but I don't have the bad nightmares anymore. They don't happen at all. Uh, they used to be terrible. I'm very, very happy. I'm not a fireman anymore. I, I mean, that's healthy. I, I'm not ho- trying to hold on and I, I'm not envious of, you know, the guys that are on the rigs now. I mean, I think I did a healthy retirement. I don't know how you get out of this job and not be traumatized. You might not be damaging your relationships around you or whatever, but I don't see how you get out of this job if you're going to in a big city and not, not be somewhat tra- traumatized. And that, uh, that bombing uh, was just a lot at one time. One of the things that helped me about the bombing is I could not believe how nice the people were in Oklahoma City when that happened. People were very kind and loving. We would have people drop off rope and twine at the fire station in case we needed it. Well, we don't, we don't use that. I mean, we're not going to use that on rescue scene, but we would accept it because you don't let, you don't, not accept somebody's help, you know, and we would accept it. I thought that people were, were very nice, very helpful. And furthermore, I never forget the help I got, the, the, that funding that paid for the trauma treatment, the therapy, the alcohol treatment. It's a lot. It was a lot of money just for this one person, just, just me. And I think I owe Oklahoma City something. One thing I owe Oklahoma City is don't drink. I owe Oklahoma City to be um, productive, and I don't mean be a money maker. I mean just be somebody that's doing that, that's being decent. That's all. I got everything given to me, and and I appreciate that. And I think that my recovery has been a real big deal. I was a mess. Sue can Sue can tell you, <laughs> but things are well now. Thank you, um, thank you, thank you, Marcus, for sharing. And now you'll hear from Dolores Watson, who will share the powerful story of her grandson. Here's Dolores. Okay. Uh, my name is Dolores Watson, and I am the grandmother slash mother of P.J. Allen. P.J. Allen was the youngest survivor of the Oklahoma City bombing. He was 18 months at the time of the explosion. P.J. had been diagnosed with asthma the Monday prior to the explosion. I uh, had the fortune of being assigned to Children's Hospital for 10 years prior to the explosion. I worked for AT&T, and so I was quite familiar with Children's Hospital. I wasn't expecting to be taking PJ there anytime soon. PJ had been out of the daycare for about five days. We made a habit of 
trying not to have him out of the daycare too many days because he was so young and he didn't want to go. And the reason I say that is because the effect of him going that Wednesday, beside PJ's injuries, the effect it had on my family totally. Uh, Wednesday was the 19th, April 19th was the only day PJ was supposed to go to the daycare that entire that entire week. And he was only going to be there for about four hours. I had an appointment at nine o'clock with the daycare director to discuss PJ's medication because he was the doctor on Monday by diagnosing him for asthma. We wanted to make sure that his prescriptions were given in a timely manner. When I dropped PJ off at the daycare, the daycare director was not there. So I knew, and at the time I was working for AT&T, I had been working for AT&T for 20 years and I was now assigned to the federal building. I did not offer out the mirror building. I offered an office out of the courtroom building. So I dropped PJ off. I went back to my office of the AT&T Center to see what activities or if there were any memos or emails that I need to catch up on, talk with my supervisor. And then I thought, well, okay, now it's almost nine o'clock. I will go back and we'll see if the director was there. So I called and route and she wasn't there. So I said, well, I'll go put my watch in the shop. So I'm driving past down Robinson and I hear this explosion. Initially, I was thinking it was a gas explosion because of the location of OGNE and ONG in the downtown city area. And, but I didn't see any sidewalk damage. I didn't see anything in front of me because I'm south of the building at this time. So I started running back up the street because I knew the explosion, the sound explosion came from behind, behind me. And from looking from the south side of the mural building, it looked fine. It was intact. So then I was thinking it was an apartment complex that was across the street from the mural building because I knew they had been doing some construction work on that building. And I, so I was running. I actually ran to the apartment and then turned around and I could see it was the federal building. And there was a, people were gathering and I would start asking about the children. I said, Did they, where are the children? Where are the children? Because now I'm, I'm PJ's in this building. I'm looking at this, the hollow portion of this building. And that's where the daycare was located. It was just nothing. And they said they had managed to get all the children out. I could not imagine how they could get all the children out looking at this building. And so then people said, there's no children in that building. I was like, Yes, there are. There are children in that building. There's a daycare. Well, everyone was saying they had gotten all the children out because they, the children, there was also a YWCA that had a daycare center in it. And that was the, then it, was, it just pandemonium because now that they're finding out that there were actual children in this building. I, I couldn't find PJ that morning. I looked and I looked. I tried to find him, couldn't find him. Finally, I told, I told my family, let's go to Children's Hospital. I said, there's one thing I honestly believe. If he can make it to Children's Hospital, I can walk him out. We were at Children's Hospital for about five hours before. And I, as I said, I worked for the telephone company. So I had every employee I knew within the telephone company searching every hospital in Oklahoma City trying to find my baby. I said, I know he's alive. Uh, I just need to find him. When five hours passed and finally a nurse came out and asked me, asked the group, is there with the parents of PJ Johnson, please uh, follow me. So I told my family, that's us. We're, that's our PJ. And they're like, they said Johnson. I said, PJ Johnson, PJ Adams, who cares? We're going to get this baby. 
once I was up there, I was, they weren't going to let me in the room because they said, is that your little girl in there? And I said, yes. My family said, we don't have a little girl. So now they're not going to let me in. I said, that's my little girl. I promise you. That's, that's PJ. Um, I could, so they let me in the room. I was the only family member that they allowed in the room. I went in the room and there was my baby. You know, he was badly burnt, but I, I said, that's PJ. That's my PJ. And the lady said that you know, that how can you recognize? And I said, ma'am, I know every inch of that baby. I, I bathe that baby. That's my baby. I mean, I, I diaper him. I, but they sent us back downstairs to see the director. And I just happened to catch her. She said, oh, yeah, I thought you knew PJ was here. I was like, no, no one ever told me PJ was here. So now I'm back up in um, the room with this child, my child. And they sent a social worker. And that was a blessing. Because the social worker they sent happened to be one of my cousins. <laughs> and she walked in there and she wasn't aware that she had any family members that had been injured in the bombing. And she saw me and she'd never met PJ. So she she said, are you OK? And, and she sat there with me and and they told the, the hospital staff told her that PJ wasn't going to make it, that there was a lady in there that believed that that was her baby. And. Would she sit with this lady? Okay, so so she sat with me. Well, PJ was still fighting to live. And I was talking to him the whole time. I was telling him how he was going to be okay. He had fallen, that he was going to be all right. And we're going to give him a bath. And we, I just, I just wanted to hear my voice. The recovery for PJ is ongoing. We're still, PJ is still recovering. This pandemic has been just devastating for him. Uh, PJ had second and third degree burns. His left arm was broken in three places. He had abrasions and cuts and rocks that were in his head that they had to be removed. PJ was sedated because they just, he was in such pain. And I, I just couldn't leave him. I, I mean, I talked and talked to PJ to no end. We were in the hospital for three days, and then they said that there was another bomb threat, and they were going to evacuate the hospital. And they were removing all the children from the hospital, and all the family members were being transported with the children because we were in ICU. And I was watching all these people running around with gurneys and, and equipment, and I asked, I said, well, when are they going to remove PJ? And they said, well, he's not going to make it So if we take him off the ventilator, so we can't move him. I said, so there's a there's a bomb threat at Children's Hospital, and you're asking me to leave my baby, which I've done once. I did that April 19th, and let another bomb go off. And I I don't think so. I said, what I'm thinking I'm gonna do is I'm gonna stay here, and if there's a bomb, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold this child and pray for this child. I'm gonna peep peep in heaven because at this point I'm not gonna make it there. I'm I'm, I'm over it. Eventually, we were able to bring PJ home. The unique thing about my situation was that I was dealing with a child. I think that was a blessing because um, I was told to make sure that he, he eat healthy, um, keep the room clean. I I did the food menu. I mean, vegetables, raw vegetables, any vegetables sleep. PJ's injuries, his burns, we couldn't go outside for two years. 
So that's when they talk about this room being built for PJ. I'm in that room now. This is the room, his playroom. Uh, a group of people got together. Mark was one of the contractors. He was just, just fantastic on making sure that PJ had a room with the UV ray protection. So we would sleep by day and play outside by night. And I went from being a 57-year-old woman to being a two-year-old child running around playing in the dirt in the middle of the night. Because PJ's immune system with his lungs was so compromised at the time, he was not able to play with other children. So I became that child. We did that for two years. After the two years, his, his skin healed beautifully. He, but he still had major problems with his respiratory system because his lungs, one lung collapsed and there's such scar tissue on his lungs. So he has difficulty breathing. PJ was on oxygen for a total of 10 years. He's, he was sick all the time. But I, with a child, you don't want them to even realize this is their life. This is their norm. So I made every effort that I possibly could for socialization for PJ during that that 10 years. He could not attend regular school because his immune system was so compromised. Uh, And he was having to take breathing treatments around the clock, sometimes every two hours, sometimes every four hours, uh, night and day. But when he was feeling good, I made arrangements with the St. Eugene's to bring him up there to go to lunch on a good day, not in the wintertime, but in the summertime. To, so he could see other kids because I thought it was very important for him to have social skills. When you were, if you had known PJ when he was 10, you just, you'd have thought, why is she trying to mainstream him? But I think that society, regardless of, of where you are physically, or mentally, you still have to be able to interact with society and be mainstream at some point in time and have social skills. The problem that we have faced continuously with PJ is the isolation. And I say that with even the pandemic, because PJ had to spend so many years homeschooling, just one-on-one, him and I. He had a wonderful teacher named Linda Mills, and I don't I just can't even imagine what we've done with five Red Cross. Um, Red Cross was phenomenal because there were so many challenges that we had to face. Uh, when I hear other people talking about the funding and how the funding was uh, being distributed, PJ, I wanted PJ. I had taken PJ to Temple, Texas, the Scott White Hospital, about his trait being removed when he was four. And they said to wait until he was 10 years old, where they had a larger area to work with before uh, considering having his trait removed. And that's something he certainly wanted. He was dreaming of going to school with other kids. He wanted to learn how to swim. He, I, I had even... Had, had him suit up for basketball. He only could wear the uniform and he, he couldn't even make it at the court, but he was on a team because I think socialization is so important for a young person and to feel like I can't do. That was that was my big thing with PJ is I wanted to emphasize that there was nothing he could not do. We just had to figure out a way to do. I told him he could play professional football and I hound uh, the Dallas Cowboys to no end until I got them to agree that they invited all six kids down and we were the, for Thanksgiving, we were the guests of the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, he got a chance to, to go on the Dallas Cowboy football field and meet Emmett Smith and Deion Sanders. And it was just a great day. 
I um, then I went. Then I we fortunate enough to get the Thunders, and so there was a professional game, and I howled them. And PJ, you have to go down there and and meet some of the Thunder players. Now you play professional football and you play professional basketball. The one thing he couldn't do was swim, so that was a big thing. That was the one thing he wanted to do was swim and go to school. Now PJ, PJ is, is going to school. He was had completed his degree in avionics, and he was looking forward to having his first real job. But the pandemic occurred, and he became ill. But even without that, his PJ still has the same preliminary care doctor, and doctor. So once again, I in in, in April 19, 1995, I walked away from a job, and here I am again because PJ doctor. Reyes has PJ quarantine during the pandemic, and it's very disheartening for him because he was really thinking, "I'm about to get my own job and move on with my life." And here we are. I'm back in the same room that I was in in 1995. Thanks again to Dolores Watson. Finally, you'll hear from Dr. John Tassie, who will share his clinical perspective of serving the mental health needs of victims of the OKC bombing. Here's Dr. Tassie. Thank you. And it's really um, humbling to be on this panel with uh, some of these folks that I've known personally or known by name for 25 years. And it's important that I recognize that the Oklahoma City chapter of the American Red Cross probably was a little bit ahead of the curve in disaster mental health because Vernon Inlow, who is a psychologist and kind of a founding member of Oklahoma professional psychology, in the early 1990s, he decided to develop a disaster mental health section. And so we were trained and prepared even before the National American Red Cross created a disaster mental health response. So we were prepared. But as uh, Mr. Evans mentioned, nobody's really prepared for what we had in April 19, 1995. We had every mental health provider of every profession, psychology, psychiatry, social work, licensed professional counselors, parents and family counselors, chaplains, faith leaders showed up to help us out with the mental health response. And we needed all of them. And I think they still participate to this day. It changed the mental health culture, definitely within Oklahoma City, and and I think nationwide, as this panel knows, but I think maybe the general population knows, the Red Cross changed their disaster mental health response due to the things we learned from the Oklahoma City bombing. The response to the 9-11-2001 events was predicated on a lot of the things we learned from the Oklahoma City bombing. But I think, you know, the kind of the focus of this symposium, Mr. Evans mentioned and what Ms. Watson mentioned, as far as trauma becomes generational, the person that's impacted is kind of the nexus of what happens next. And it's real interesting to me when I was thinking about my role in this panel is how Oklahoma has been exposed to several historical events that have created generational trauma. You know, when you start with the relocation of Native peoples in the Trail of Tears, or when you think about 
the massacre in Tulsa, or you think about the Oklahoma City bombing, all of these are events that created a generational trauma that impact not only the event, but the family for generations. And I know that some of the things we did for the Red Cross was not only providing mental health services to the survivors, but providing mental health services to the children of survivors and providing services to them because it was so important. And as Marcus mentioned, thanks to this, the generosity of the donors and thanks to the very good stewardship of the American Red Cross, we have those resources to do things that traditionally aren't done in a typical disaster response. Okay, before we close things out today, I wanted to invite MJ Clausen, who helped facilitate this session, along with the amazing Terry Wimblad, to share her final thoughts about the Zero Mental Health Symposium and what she hopes the legacy of a breakout session such as this one that you just heard will have for years to come. So MJ, close us out with your final thoughts. Well, I hope that the legacy of the symposium is that we all learned a a great deal. Um, It was such a timely topic. And I, I always hope that our, that our legacy is that, that recovery is possible and that help is available. It can be difficult. It can be difficult to take that first step. It can be difficult to reach out. It can be difficult to navigate the mental health care system. We are here to help people do that at Mental Health Association Oklahoma. And I think that the the message is one of, of hope and resiliency and that recovery from any trauma that we've experienced in our lives is possible. The 26th annual Zero Mental Health Symposium was hosted virtually for the first time this year, which means you can still register and access the content for the next six months. We owe a special thank you to our sponsors who made this event possible, including the George Kaiser Family Foundation, the Anne and Henry Zero Foundation, Public Health Institute of Oklahoma, the Oxley Foundation, and the Maxine and Jack Zero Family Foundation. Learn more or register at zerosymposium.org.